Well, I'm Adrian, um, and I get to bring you the, you know, the second week or third week of uh, our Mark series, where, um, or of the second chapter in our series on Mark, where we're talking about Jesus challenging religion. Um, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, when you, when you think about the word religion, right? I mean, the, the simplest way, I think, to, to, to define that word is, is really kind of how we defined it at the beginning, which is the way that we pursue and the way that we pursue and live out our belief in God, right? Our relationship with God. And, and in this chapter, we've been seeing Jesus challenge people's idea about religion and, and maybe even challenging our own idea about religion. You know, that, that first, uh, the, the, at the beginning of the chapter, he, he kind of basically showed us that, that he was greater than religion. You know, he, he, he basically forgave the sins of that paralyzed man that was lowered through the roof. And when the religious leaders were wondering, like, how can, where do you get the authority to forgive sins? He heals him and tells him to get up and walk, proving that he had the authority and the power to forgive sins. You know, not only did, did Jesus show us that he was more powerful, greater than, than religion, he, he also showed us that he had a different religious standard than the religious leaders at that time, right? And, and I, I think a, a different religious standard than what we see a lot today even, right? That where religions, the, the problem with religion is that they tend to move towards this idea that you can work out your own salvation, right? That you can have a relationship with God by, by being good or, or, or working on it. And, and what happens, like something happens in our minds when we have that kind of idea that we can work towards earning a relationship with God is we begin to actually look down on people that, that we don't believe are living up to what we believe the religious standard is to have a relationship with God. You see, and Jesus showed us God's religious standard when he sat at the table with the tax collectors and, and those sinners, right? When he invited those people to have a relationship with him. And he says, I've come to have a relationship with people who understand that they can't earn their relationship with me. I've come for the sick, the ones who know that they need forgiveness. Well, you know, today, we're going to, Jesus is going to show us the heart of religion. He's going to show us what, what religion is supposed to be all about. And we're going to pick up where we left off in, um, in verse 18 in chapter 2, and, and remember that, that Jesus has just got done having this meal with a bunch of sinners, right? He, he, he just got, got challenged with the idea of, of, of how can you be seen with those types of people. And now a, a group of people come up to him, and they're questioning him 
about the, the, the religious practice of his disciples. They're, they're wondering why his disciples aren't participating in kind of the religious traditions of their day. And it starts off in verse 18. Once when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Now, the, the message today isn't, isn't really about, about fasting, but I, I think having an understanding about fasting will help us understand kind of Jesus' answer to this question here. You know, when, when you look in the Bible, the actual word that is used for fasting just literally means to abstain or to, to go without food. You know, today, um, you know, if you're kind of in the, in the fitness craze, you, you, you actually hear a lot about fasting, right? That it's good for your, your gut health, it's, it's, it's good to help you maintain weight, and, you know, it's got all these different kind of benefits. Now, this isn't the kind of fasting that, that, that we're talking about here. You see, in, in the fasting we're talking about here is the fasting that we see spoken about all throughout the Bible. You see, the, the Old Testament mentions fasting as an, as an act of mourning, right? As an act of mourning. It was used as a, an expression of mourning when a loved one died. We see an example of this in, uh, with uh, uh, Jonathan and um, Saul and Jonathan, the king of Israel, when he was killed by the Philistines, him and his son, the, some great warriors actually went and retrieved his remains, their remains, and brought them back to be buried. And the Bible tells us that they fasted for seven days. You see, what they were doing is they were mourning the loss of relationship. They were mourning the loss of their king. We also see in the Bible that, that fasting is, is used with prayer as, a, as an act of, of dependence on God, a, an act of dependence and a, a need for God's guidance and, and even his intervention. We see this in the story of Esther, where she asked the, all of Israel who were captive in, in Persia to, to pray or to fast and to pray with her for God's favor, because she was about to go into the Persian king's throne room and ask that, that he would help her save the lives of all the Jews that were in danger. We also see fasting as a, an act of humility and repentance. You know, there's a story about King Ahab who, he wasn't a good king. King of Israel, he wasn't a good king. But when he heard uh, about the, the, the judgment that he was going to receive, that him and his family were going to receive for the sins that he had committed against the people of Israel and God, we're told that he, he tore his clothes and fasted. It was, uh, uh, he, was, he was repentative. He was sorry to God for what he has done. So in the Old Testament, we see fasting as uh, an act of, of mourning the loss of a relationship, fasting as the, uh, uh, an act of dependence and the need for God, for his guidance, for his intervention, 
We see fasting as an act of humility and repentance. The nation of Israel actually was, was commanded to fast once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, the, the day of atonement. Right? This was the day that, that the high priest of Israel would go into the, the tabernacle, go into the holies of holies, and offer a sacrifice for his sin and the sin of the entire nation of Israel. You know, when, it's, when, you, when you think about that, it's kind of th this act of, of fasting that the nation of Israel was commanded to participate in really had all these elements in it, right? They were, they were, it was an act of, of mourning their separation from God because of their sin. It was an act of, of humbling themselves before God and in, in repentance. It was an act of, of, of calling on God for, for guidance, for direction, for relationship. It was an act of, of hope that they had that one day God was going to come and repair their relationship for good. You see, and it's this kind of meaning, I believe, that was actually passed on to the early church. And, and it's this kind of meaning of, of fasting that, that, that the church participates in today. Humbling ourselves before God right? Re resisting the desires of the flesh, like symbolism and resisting the desires of the flesh, showing our dependence on God. You know, many today would describe fasting as denying the flesh to strengthen the spirit. You know, fasting is considered a, a spiritual discipline, right? Fasting doesn't save you, but it's considered a spiritual discipline because like all those things we just spoke about, those examples we see in the Old Testament, fasting is a way that we, is a way that we come before God, humbly coming for him, asking for direction, for guidance, for intervention in our lives, growing in our relationship with him. You know, this along with, you know, some other spiritual disciplines like prayer and, and reading the Bible and worship, right? Those are all things we do to grow in our relationship with God. And see, the thing is, is that faith always expresses itself in certain activities like fasting. You see, what that means is when you believe in something, right? When you believe in something, it actually changes the way you live, it changes the way you act, right? You can't really say that you believe in something if, if it never impacts how you behave, right? Like, kind of like that example of sitting in a chair. You can say that you believe the chair will hold you up, but if you never actually sit into it believing it will hold you up, do you really believe it's going to hold you up? You see, remember, religion is the way that we pursue our relationship with God, the things we do to pursue our relationship with God, and it involves these spiritual disciplines. But you see, toxic religion uses this as a litmus test to police the spiritual lives of others. 
You see, the danger of religion is that these, 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 these fasting, prayer, reading the Bible, like all these spiritual disciplines, they, they, it, something gets messed up in religion to where these aren't used to grow in your relationship with God. Instead, they're, they're used in a way to try to earn your relationship with God. And then we end up using it as a litmus test for other people, determining their relationship. And this is kind of what I believe is actually happening in our passage, is that these people that are coming up to, to Jesus and, and asking why his disciples aren't, aren't following the, the fast like the other religious people at the time, is because these, these guys, you know, this, this passage actually comes up in, in Luke chapter 5 and, and Matthew chapter 9. And, and when you read these passages together, you really get the idea that the people that are, are asking this question are actually the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples. You see, the Pharisees is no surprise, right? We knew that, that they were kind of the, the folks that were all about earning their salvation, earning their relationship with God. But, but John the Baptist, he was the one that was paving the way for Jesus Christ. So you would think that, that his disciples would kind of have gotten the picture that, that he was steering them away from this religious system that was in Israel at the time. But I think we see here that like maybe like many of us today, John the Baptist's disciples were kind of stuck in that quandary to where they, were, they wanted to follow God, but they were being enticed by a religious system that was actually leading them away from God. Both groups you would have thought would be pursuing God, but I think both groups were actually distracted distracted. And this is why they ask this question. Fasting is the way you, have a re you earn a relationship with God twice a week. You see, it's interesting that the Jews were required to fast once a year. You know, voluntary fasting wasn't forbidden, but by this time, it was actually required that you fast. If you're a religious person, if you're pursuing God, it really was like a requirement that you fasted twice a week. A bad religious system. And see in here, Jesus responds to them by, by helping them understand the true purpose behind fasting. But, but not only the true purpose behind fasting, the true purpose behind any spiritual discipline. And this is how he responds. Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, but someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, if, if this seems kind of odd to you that, you know, Jesus is going to respond to a question of why his disciples aren't fasting, like, why does he bring up a wedding? Like, why of a sudden are we talking about a wedding? But, you know, believe it or not, the wedding has some, some great importance. It's got great importance. You know, for us, 
you know, we'd celebrate a wedding, maybe a day. The, the bride and groom maybe get a week or two, you know, a week or more on their honeymoon. But back here in this time, a, a wedding celebration could last up to a week, right? Could, could be a week of, of celebrating, a week of, of feasting and, and celebrating. And it was against the law, actually, for somebody to fast during a wedding celebration or at a wedding celebration. Again, we get a glimpse of kind of this idea of, these, of, of the Pharisees and how they were, they were practicing this spiritual discipline for the wrong reason. They were practicing to earn their way to God. Practicing to let other people see so they would actually go to weddings looking all distraught and despondent because they were fasting, because they were holy people. But you know, the, the meaning behind the wedding is in the Old Testament, God called himself the bridegroom of Israel. Isaiah 54, 5 says, for your creator will be your husband. He's talking, this is uh, through Isaiah, God talking to the nation of Israel. For your creator will be your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He is your redeemer, the holy one of Israel, the God of all the earth. You see, what Jesus is saying is you can't fast because the groom is here. Jesus just, just declared that he was God in the flesh. He just declared that, that he was the God that Israel had been waiting for for thousands of years to come and save them. He said that he is the groom. And when you think about what, what fasting means, right, that, that fasting is, is an, an act of, of mourning, a separation in relationship, that, that fasting is a, a way to humble yourself and ask for forgiveness and, and seek God's direction and guidance through prayer to have fellowship with God. Well, basically, Jesus is saying is, is this is not the time for fasting because God is right here. God is in your presence. You see, this was a time of celebration. This was a, a time where the, the long-awaited Messiah had come to Israel. It was a time to embrace the relationship with the God that was right in front of them. But Pharisees and some of John's disciples were so distracted with trying to earn their relationship with God that they missed it. They missed that they were in the presence of God. They missed they were in the presence of God. And this is the danger of religion. Religion can treat spiritual practices like requirements on a checklist. 
but they are really opportunities to express your heart towards God. You see, I believe that if the Pharisees, these people asking this question to Jesus, would have been more interested in actually pursuing a relationship with God rather than trying to earn it, if they weren't trying to work their way to God, I believe that they would have seen Jesus for who he was. The God and their Savior. You know, when we practice these spiritual disciplines passed down to us through the church, we've got to be careful that, that we don't make the same mistake that these spiritual disciplines don't somehow work their way into our mind that if we practice them, God's going to like us. That if we practice them, we'll earn a relationship with God. Right? These, these spiritual disciplines should be practiced out of our heart's desire to grow in our relationship with God. See, but Jesus does say that there will be a time to fast, but someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. You see, Jesus was prophesying that, that he was going to give his life. Right there, he was telling people that, that he, the bridegroom, was going to give his life so that Israel, so that me and you could have a relationship with him. That he was going to allow himself to be hung up on a cross, that his blood would be shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So that we could have a relationship with him. And out of that relationship, right, out of that relationship, even though he would he would be raised to life, showing that he had the power to defeat sin and death, right? And, and even though after that he would actually ascend into heaven, only to the return at the appointed time, that he would leave us alone. He's left us with these spiritual disciplines to practice after we've put our trust in him so that our relationship with him can grow. You know, these spiritual disciplines, we, we don't have time to go into. Reading the Bible, prayer, fasting, worship. But you can go to PursueGod.com, and if you just type in spiritual disciplines, there's a lot of resources if you want to learn how to apply these spiritual disciplines in your life. But remember, these spiritual disciplines don't save you. After you put your trust in Jesus, they'll, they'll help you grow in your relationship with him. But they don't save you. They'll help you draw closer to him. But you know, the passage ain't done because Jesus actually wants to make sure that these folks know the stuff that he has just said. He wants to make sure that they know it's not just about fasting. That wasn't the only question that he was answering. And he actually goes on to start talking about cloth and, and, and wineskins and things like that. He says this, besides, 
Who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. See, nowadays the, the fashion trend is to wear ripped clothes, right? I mean, it's, my kids buy it all the time. I, you know, but there was a day when, when you didn't want to have holes in your clothes, right? There was a day when if you developed holes in your clothes, they would act, you would actually patch them. Nowadays, we've got, you know, all kinds of synthetic fibers and, and different kinds of things. And, and I actually think that nowadays when we get a hole in our clothes, we likely, unless it's work clothes, we just, you know, we just toss them and buy something new. But there was a day when you would repair clothes, and, and there was a way that you had to repair it, right? If you were going to patch a hole, you wouldn't use a new piece of cloth to patch an old garment. Because what would happen is, is when no matter how well you kind of stitched that and, and patched it together, when you threw that thing into the wash, that new cloth was going to shrink and rip away from the garment doing just exactly what it says, creating a bigger hole. So you didn't want to patch. The, see, the, the old clothes had been conditioned, right? They'd been worn and washed, and so they're more stable. The new cloth hasn't been washed or worn, and so it's going to shrink and rip away. You know, after this talking about the, the patch, he actually goes on and and, and adds to it this thing about wineskins, and he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst, the, the wineskins and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. See, I'm a, uh, at our house, we like to watch uh, cooking competition shows. Right? And, and every now and then you'll get somebody, one of these chefs or restaurateurs will be on the show and they're all about utilizing the entire animal, right? Utilizing the entire animal, which means they're using, you know, they believe it's the best practice is to use every single bit of that animal in some way in some kind of a dish. Well, on one of these shows, this, this guy tried to apply that same concept to a, a stock of corn. And uh, he actually tried to use the corn hair in his, in his he put the corn hair in his dish. It, it didn't go over very well. But, but, but that's the kind of thing we're talking about here with wineskins is, is back in Jesus' day, everything would be utilized. And so they would actually create wineskins or like a, a bag for wine out of the skin of a goat. They would sew up the, the, the legs and stuff, you know, kind of creating a pouch and, and have the kind of the, uh, you know, the, the spout basically created out of the neck. And, you know, they would, you know, obviously they would treat this skin and they would make sure it was sealed up. Well, then after it's all sealed up and ready to go, they pour wine in it, new wine. They pour new wine in it. New wine means that the wine is... Uh, is, has not fermented, right? It's fresh. And so they pour that new wine in. And what happens is while the wine's in the wineskin, it begins to ferment. And so it begins to release gas. And so that wineskin is going to stretch. 
as that gas builds up. And what Jesus is saying is that, is, you see, what would happen is over time, those wineskins would kind of, after they've been used, they, they become brittle, right? They're, they're not as flexible as they, they used to be. And so the problem would be you put new wine into an old wineskin and it begins to ferment. That wineskin can't stretch. And so the wineskin ends up bursting. And just like Jesus says, both the wine and the skin are lost. Jesus says new wine, says new wine calls for new wineskins. You see, and this is what I believe Jesus wanted them to understand. Religion can take a rigid, legalistic approach to spiritual practices as an end in themselves, a work-based religion. You see, Judaism had become a works-based religion. The things that God had put in place for them that would help them pursue a relationship with him, they became the end in themselves. It became a works-based religion. You see, this is the old cloth. This is the old skin. See, the religions of the world, even today, they all have some element of you working for your relationship with God. That's old cloth. That's old skins. And these religions are incompatible with the good news that Jesus Christ was bringing. You see, this is what, what Jesus is telling them is, is this, this good news that, that I'm sharing with you, this new wine, this new cloth, you can't just take what I'm sharing with you and, and attach it to what this, this works-based religion that you're already practicing because it doesn't work. They don't go together. Jesus is saying the message that he's sharing, the good news that, that he is giving his life so that we could have a relationship with God, that he's doing everything that's required for us to have a relationship with God by simply putting our trust in him is not compatible with the idea of you working for your salvation or working for a relationship with God. Jesus is the new cloth and the new wine. And you know what's, what's interesting about that too, especially the wine part? Wine in the Bible represents joy. And Jesus is the new wine, the new wine. See, the grace of Jesus Christ, this Salvation by putting our trust in what Jesus has done alone can't be combined with works-based religions. See, in Christ, spiritual practices express the dynamic, heartfelt relationship we have with the God of grace. 
see, spiritual disciplines won't save us. But we practice them after we've put our trust in Jesus Christ. Because the grace of God has transformed our hearts, giving us new desires. And, and now our desire is to grow in our relationship with God. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Religion isn't bad. It's simply the way that we pursue our relationship with God. But don't let religion become a works-based thing in your life. Because God saved you. All you got to do is put your trust in him. Don't add anything to it. Don't mix religion and works with the gospel of grace. It doesn't work. Both the wine and the wineskin will be lost. And we should remember that since we were saved by grace, don't look down on people that you think are less religious than you. Will you pray with me? Father, you are mighty, uh, righteous, and, uh, and a holy God, and we give you praise that, Lord, that you provided the way. And Father, every day we're bombarded by this idea of, of somehow earning your love. But Lord, I... Thank you that, uh, that that's impossible and that we can experience your love simply by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we give you praise and exalt you as the King of kings and Lord of lords. In the name of Jesus, amen. <laughs>